This is A New Angle, a show about cool people doing awesome things in and around Montana. I'm your host, Justin Angle. This show is supported by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications, and the University of Montana College of Business. Hey folks, welcome back and thanks for tuning in. Today I'm speaking with Leslie Allison, founding member and executive director of Western Landowners Alliance. We've become a very consumeristic society. We think we have a right to everything, but we don't talk as much as we once did about the responsibilities that come with that right. WLA seeks to advance policies and practices that sustain working lands in the West. And many of the most contentious and consequential issues here in Montana are right in the wheelhouse of this important organization. Leslie, thanks for coming on the show. Well, thank you very much. It's good to be here. So tell us, where did you grow up and what did your parents do? I grew up in the mountains of northern New Mexico and uh, spent a good part of my childhood living in a, a tiny forest inn holding in the Santa Fe National Forest. And um, my father uh, was trying to be the next great American writer. So for the early years of my childhood, he stayed home uh, writing and kicked me out of the house where I got to roam around the National Forest, uh, which is really how I got got into my passion for land. And then my mom uh, in the early years was a school teacher. And later on, uh, they ended up opening some restaurants, uh, nightclubs. My father had a desire to introduce jazz to New Mexico. He was a, a big fan of blues and jazz and uh, wanted to bring it in that way. And so they, so we did that for a while for my uh, teen years and my childhood. And uh, today my mom is uh, does some bookkeeping and still lives up in that national forest. Fantastic. Talk a little bit about the experiences that led you to be a founding member of Western Land Owners Alliance. What, what sort of positioned you in your career to kind of move to that step of organizing some private landowners? Well, it was really quite an unexpected journey. You know, I grew up in the West, as I said, in an inholding in the National Forest. And so I'd been exposed to a lot of things, uh, Western issues, logging, grazing, mining, all that kind of stuff. So I was familiar with it. That wasn't what I was really focused on. And uh, I actually went into communications, journalism, things like that, went back east to college and then came back out to New Mexico. I ended up having a unique opportunity to manage a, a private ranch up in southern Colorado when a friend of mine bought the ranch. And, you know, he was really a conservationist. He, he bought it to protect it from development, but he also wanted to figure out how we could learn to generate income so that, you know, neighbors and, you know, future generations could could know how to live on a piece of land without spoiling it, which is what Aldo Leopold tells us is the oldest task in human history. I really knew very little about agriculture and never managed a piece of land before sure. in that way. And it was a large, you know, mountainous piece of land. And so I got to spend 16 years on the ground you know, really learning on the job about everything from running livestock, hay production, hunting programs, uh, forestry operations, wildlife conservation. We we discovered that we had neighbors all around us, traditional ranchers, new buyers, all kinds of folks that really were interested in the same things we were. How do you take care of this land? How do you help support good livelihoods on it? How do you work together as a community? And we formed the Chama Peak Land Alliance, uh, which is still going strong today, uh, doing great work there in that, that part of the country. And then I had the opportunity in 2011 to attend what would become the founding meeting of the Western Landowners Alliance. What we felt we lacked 
was a, a an informed voice from within the landowner community that was centered on what we think is the thing that matters most, which is the land. That we have to take care of the land if we want it to be there for future generations, if we want it to be there to support all of the things that we as people need, from our food and fiber and energy to all the you know, clean water and healthy forests and scenery and quality of life that we all appreciate because we're losing that land. And we not only need to, 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 to conserve it, to stop it from going into development, but we also need to really understand how to manage it very well to support all those different values. And we felt that a landowner voice was really needed at the heart of that. And so that's that was sort of the birth of WLA. It was really exciting to be part of it. And soon after that, I ended up leaving the ranch just because we just didn't have the kind of school system opportunities that I wanted for my son, who sure. was coming of school age out there. So moved back to Santa Fe and uh, and soon after ended up uh, in this role here with Western Landowners Alliance. And so describe the kind of scope of the organization. Um, you know, how many states uh, have members? What What's kind of the give us a little bit of a description of the membership profile. So we span the pretty much the 11 Western states. We also have members from Texas, the Dakotas, Nebraska, other mm-hmm. places like that um, as well. But our, our geographic focus is really the, the West um, and a lot in the Intermountain West, although we do have membership in, in California and working more now on the coasts. Uh, we just got a new staff member in Oregon, for example. Our membership is very diverse. We have probably the majority are ranching, many of them on public lands. Uh, as well as private lands, but we also have people who are farming. We have forestry operations, guest ranches. Uh, we have landowners that just own the land for their own, you know, private purposes, but care about the, the fate of that land and how they how they're taking care of it. So we have a whole range of people, and then we have um, the full political spectrum. It is remarkable. We have very very diverse political perspectives in the organization, um, but everybody. The place that we really find that that common theme is. The love of the land sure. and the recognition that they're, they're not making any more of it. We have to do a better job taking care of it. So, Leslie, what are the issues that you're working on that you think are most important to Montana and Montanans? Farms and ranches are businesses, and they have to make the bottom line work. And if, if they can't make the bottom line work, they go out of business. And often that means they go into development or some other intensive land use. It means they can't pass that land on to their kids and so forth. So so we all lose. So making sure that farmers and ranchers can earn a livelihood on the land and also be able to take care of that land in the process, that they don't have to make hard trade-offs between should I, you know, overgraze this pasture because the elk are also lo- using it? Do we have to be pitting, you know, conservation against people's ability to, to make an income? It's really important. And then even with wealthy landowners, they're very conscious of the, you know, cost benefits of owning a piece of land. It's very expensive to own land. And after a certain level, you know, people are just unwilling to continue putting money into that sink if they can't find a way to make that um, make that right at the bottom line level. So that's what I mean when I say the economics of, of working lands. And it's the economic forces that are driving land into development. It just is. Land is getting more and more expensive every day. The input costs are getting more and more expensive every day. There's less and less of it, which is part of what's driving up those costs. As land goes into develop, it drives prices higher on remaining lands. While at the same time, agriculture is increasingly challenged. There's really three economic drivers that keep open lands open and intact. 
Okay. And that is agriculture, ecotourism, which includes hunting and fishing, mm-hmm. and then a little bit of energy development. That's about it. And so agriculture is challenging. As we all know, it's always been a challenging, risky, you know, narrow profit margin proposition. But that's getting more challenging today with the Western water crisis, uh, with some of the things that are happening around climate and the food systems. Um, so agriculture struggling at the moment. And then you look at the, uh, the ecotourism piece, and that gets you straight into some of these issues around public access. And, yes. you know, can landowners, you know, benefit from the booming outdoor recreation and ecotourism business, or are they going to be injured by it, right? That's a big economic question um, that we have to ask. So those are that. So economics is at the top of the list. Water is certainly at the top of the list. Uh, as we get more and more wildlife species uh, getting closer to um, being listed under the Endangered Species Act, that can really affect private landowners. So what can we do to help landowners, you know, who have done good things for wildlife, not sort of be penalized by by that particular regulatory uh, oversight? So those are some of the issues that we're focused on right now. And then there's always the conflicts between uh, livestock and wildlife, and we've got a big program in that area as well. Yeah, let's talk about the wildlife piece first. You know, given it's hunting season here in you know, Montana and throughout the West, I mean, there there are all sorts of public debate about the elk population, for example, here in Montana. And, you know, it's moved in many ways from public land to private land. And then there's a bunch of debate over how to allow public access, uh, all sorts of things. How, how do you all approach an issue like that? Well, I think you you have to you really have to start. I start anyway with thinking about to going back to the economics. And if we can't keep these lands intact, if we can't keep them economically viable, we're going to lose them. And when we lose them, that habitat goes away, and and with that, the, the wildlife go away. And so one of the things I think people may not realize, but private and working lands provide the essential habitat for species like elk in the West. The critical winter range uh, is really on those private working lands. So let me, I'll just give you an example of that. You know, you've got Yellowstone National Park there, for example, and the elk and the other wildlife that, that visitors enjoy in the summer in Yellowstone, they spend, those wildlife spend their winters on the working lands that surround the park. Sure. And they're consuming forage down in those lower elevation pastures and hayfields that farmers and ranchers have worked all year to produce. And so as the elk populations increase or concentrate on those remaining open working lands, they're literally eating away people's livelihoods. And of course, they also destroy the fences and they've got brucellosis and um, that's a disease transmitted between elk and livestock. These things come at a very significant cost. So it puts a downward economic pressure on the very lands that are so essential to uh, sustaining those wildlife. So the question is, how can we make it work that these landowners are able to continue supporting that public wildlife? How can they capitalize on the forage that they're feeding to be able to stay in business and, and to continue to producing, you know, those those crucial things that society needs like food and fiber and energy and so on. So I think you have to start with that understanding of it first. That makes a ton of sense. And what are what are some models of kind of successfully balancing those interests? You know, it's a challenge all over the West. And what we've been talking a lot with the sportsman's community about is how can we come together to put the resource first? And by the resource, 
we're really talking about the habitat and the wildlife that we all care about and these open lands. How do we make sure that they stay intact and healthy first before we talk about access, before we talk about you know all, all these other things? Because if that's gone, then nobody gets what they'd like to pass on to the next generation, right? Whether that's hunting opportunities or you know at an agricultural heritage, whatever it is. So there's a big debate about whether landowners should be able to, you know, sell hunting licenses, you know, to hunt on their properties and and things like that. And and sportsmen will say, well, when landowners doing do that, they're privatizing the sure. wildlife. It's a it public the public owns the wildlife, or at least is is responsible for the for the wildlife. And and so the private landowner shouldn't be able to to take advantage of that. But I think the flip side of that is to say, well, but the private landowner is also feeding the public yeah, wildlife. Exactly for a good portion of the year out of their pocket. And so- And at the you know, expense of the herd, right? The, the cattle herd, right? right? They're not only consuming a resource that the rancher has invested in, but consuming a resource that was invested in to fund and support another sort of economic output, and that's the cattle herd. I think what's so hard for people to understand when you, because we love land in the West, right? All of us live in the West. You have to love sure. land, love in the, live in the West, right? And we drive by land and- I think people don't recognize again that that these farms and ranches are businesses. And you know, here's an image that you might think about. Let's say that you have a whole row of parcels and and parcel one is developed into, you know, a shopping mall and parcel two is developed into a subdivision and parcel three is a warehouse and parcel four is an energy field and parcel five is a farmer ranch. Well, all those other ones, they may have a fence around them, walls around them. You can't see what's going on inside of them. You know, those things have all taken habitat away. This last one, the ranch or the farm, is the only one that's left that's providing habitat. But it's just as much a business as those others, right? And if we if we take its ability uh, to stay in business away, you know, it's the only business in that block that is actually compatible with wildlife, right? And so you can see what happens next. The accusation of, of privatizing wildlife, I think, leads us into a dead-end public dialogue, to be really honest. We'll be back to my conversation with Leslie Allison after this short break. A New Angle is supported by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications, and UM's College of Business. Access to capital, broadband, and education are three ingredients any community needs for success. Hi, I'm Nora Sachs. I'm the host and reporter of Richest Hill, a podcast from Montana Public Radio, and you're listening to A New Angle. Welcome back to A New Angle. We're talking about protecting working lands with Leslie Allison of Western Landowners Alliance. You're totally right that like when we, we go into that framing, it sets us up for an adversarial dead end conversation because, you know, it, it, it just pits people against each other rather than sort of trying to find areas of overlap and, and common ground. It does. And, and the other piece that, you know, I think creates dead end dialogue, I think anytime we we other one another. Yes. Anytime we villainize, you know, a class of people, we should, a red flag should go up for us. And so when we say, oh, those billionaires, you know, oh, those new landowners, oh, those whoever they are, oh, those environmentalists, oh, those ranchers, mm-hmm. you know, we're doing a disservice to our ability to find solutions. Because I can tell you that some of those billionaires are buying land that was going into subdivision in order to save it. Some people went to work in the world and made some money and have a very strong conservation and environmental ethic 
and they're trying to take their money and put it to good purpose. So let's let's not do this to each other where we short each other and and take that cynical view of people. And yes, there are bad actors on all sides. And for every time somebody tells me about a landowner that's done something egregious for you know shutting out public access or doing something, I could cite 1,500 other cases in which sportsmen were bad actors and poached or did something you know, negative. I could point to a lot of things. That's not a productive dialogue either. And so I think we need to get to a better place. And an issue that is kind of has some similar elements is that of population growth, particularly in the West. I mean, we saw during COVID uh, a, a lot of urban flight to more rural communities. We certainly experienced that throughout Montana. And that puts development pressure on on the land. It's another economic force. And there's all sorts of positions around, you know, not in my backyard and and housing policy and so forth. How has your organization kind of looked at that? Because it's very tempting to look at increased population as, oh, there's these other folks moving into our space. But, you know, people have a right to move around. And how do we kind of allow those forces to play out and manage them in a productive in a productive way. I mean, you've said it really well. One of the challenges that we're seeing is that that pressure driving land into development means that the remaining open lands have so many more expectations on them now, right? So this is where the elk are starting to concentrate. You know, you're seeing, uh, for example, this huge increase in public rec- outdoor recreation. Um, and it's wonderful. We want people in the outdoors. That pressure, though, pushes wildlife away. It pushes wildlife, you know, half a mile away from where human presence is in some cases. It's pushing that combined with increasing predator populations, for example, in Montana, is pushing elk and predators with them right down onto the private lands. We're seeing elk herds that were migratory now just becoming resident herds down in those farm fields, right? Right, And, and, right? And ranch pastures. Once those things are concentrated there, then everybody says, hey, all we want into those ranches, we want access to those animals, right? But that, once again, that's going to put even more pressure on those landowners to try to keep that habitat and that, that land in, intact. The other thing that is, is happening that's a, you know enormous concern to me personally as a conservationist is that wildlife have fewer and fewer places to find refuge. And we see it in a, the extreme, I can tell you, in the Southwest where water sources are limited and you see bumper to bumper RVs, fishermen, you name it, all on every water source. And that means the wildlife aren't able to get to the water. If you have every stream, you know, is become a recreational footpath for the public to come fish on the weekends, then not only the spawning beds in fragile streams are really at risk, but all the wildlife that lives along those streams and you know riparian areas like that are so important to the west to the survival of all of our wildlife species so we down here we have willow flycatchers and all kinds of things that live in those willows along the streams and as we recreate and play they don't have a place to nest take a rest in you know in the afternoon put their fawn into a you know tucked piece of grass to hide it i mean we're really pushing these things and so private land is playing in a more and more and more important role in providing refuge where, where animals, fish, wildlife can can breed, can rest, can eat, can get water. So I think we have to balance that because yes, we have a desire to pass on a, a hunting heritage, for example, 
and a recreational heritage, but we sure need to pass on some biodiversity too. So how do we balance that and begin to, to put some constraints on our own impact, right? We've, we've become a very consumeristic society. We think we have a right to everything, but we don't talk as much as we once did about the responsibilities that come with that right. You mentioned water as a prominent issue, and, and it has some of the similar dynamics. There's probably, you know, I'm not a water law expert, but I would venture to say that in most Western states, the sum total of the water allocated in water rights often exceeds the amount of water in the stream, in the reservoir, etc. How are you all approaching productive conversations and policymaking around water? We need to get to a place of more in-depth and productive dialogue. And so what you hear is, hey, farmers and ranchers use 80% of the water. They need to figure out how to give some of that up. But what isn't in that dialogue is it's not farmers and ranchers drinking that water. I can guarantee you that. It's going into the food that goes onto American plates. Sure. It's what we eat. Okay. And it's what we drink. It's all our beverages, our lattes, everything that we it's us consuming that water. So if you want to talk about cuts to agricultural production and water use, you are talking about cuts to our own diet. Then there's this other question. We work a lot in the Colorado River Basin right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a you know, great need to get the water you know, down to places like the big farms that you know, are so important to the American you know, food security, food system, and, and, uh, and diet. You know, there's a big pull to try to do that, big pull to get that water into cities right? To continue municipal growth and uses. But when you take water out of the headwaters, out of the rural landscapes, you know, that irrigation does more than just grow food. It creates wildlife habitat. It creates what we call sort of the living sponge effect of the watershed, right? When you have a green functional watershed that's well vegetated, when rain falls, that rainfall is captured and infiltrated into the ground, it's stored effectively in good soils and down in the aquifers, and it's slow released throughout the season uh, to those lower elevation uses. That creates a stability in our water supply that's very important while also supporting all the wildlife habitat. And then think about this, we have, we have climate issues and we're trying to grow healthy forests, healthy grasslands to sequester carbon. So if you dewater these landscapes, these rural landscapes, you decrease our ability to do that as well. And so there's a very big picture that has to be thought about and many trade-offs that have to be thought about in trying to find answers to these questions. And so what we're trying to do is we're trying to bring landowners to the table who have the you know lived experience of owning and managing land, who care about all the values that we're talking about and have that you know real world experience of what it means to manage water and to manage water in a time of drought and to, to come through the local community level to find what are those solutions, because we're all going to have to give something up. There's no question, but that's going to have to be all stakeholders in the system. And as you have uh, communities, for example, that are having to fallow land, um, take land out of production because there just isn't enough water, how do you share that economic pain, but also how do you do that in a way that doesn't deplete the soils, um, that doesn't deplete the capacity of the land to regenerate. So if you take a a farm field, for example, and you follow it for a few years, it's very difficult to get it back. It's very difficult to revegetate it. And that soil then dries up and blows away. And we lose that healthy soil and that water holding capacity that's so crucial to everything else that comes after. 
And so there's, there's economic impacts, there's social impacts, there's ecological impacts of how we move this water around. Um, and I think the, the bottom line is we're all going to have to do more with less. Let's do that as well as we can. Leslie, in our remaining time, I'd like to touch on a couple additional issues. And the first is, you know, the concept of ownership and land ownership and the question of whether a person can own land is, is kind of contested and grounded in a, in, a, in a European worldview in many ways. How do you all interface with tribal communities and some of the indigenous populations that, that uh, exist in and around the, the land and the landowners that you work with? We're doing everything we can to really pay attention to perspectives from different tribes, indigenous knowledge, the history, what their needs are, trying to fit that into you know the world today where um, we've got people who have you know invested in many cases you know generations ago in, in land as well. Um, and I, I think that the answer in the long run really is going to have to be we need to figure out a way to look forward. Yes, we have to recognize I think all the injustices of the past. We need to harvest from uh, indigenous peoples as much wisdom and guidance as we can. Um, we need to do as much as we can to, to create, you know, justice and equity. And then together, we need to be thinking about how do we convey what we have left of our natural heritage to, to future generations? How do we live together on the land? And I don't think any of us has the solutions today. You know, tribal ranchers and farmers need to make a living just as much as anybody else, right? How do we solve that economic challenge. We have water issues that are severe on reservations, just as they are anyplace else. How do we solve our water distribution problems? Wildlife cross, you know, all of these land ownerships and jurisdictions and important to all of us. How do we work together on those things? And of course, it starts as all good things start by building really good relationships, by building relationships that aren't transactional, of course, that are meaningful relationships. And that takes time. It takes a lot of trust building. And in a world where everyone's really busy, it can be really very difficult. And I feel for the tribes right now because, you know, I think there's this finally awareness of, of tribal contributions, of indigenous people's contributions uh, and needs and interests and rights. And so everybody is, I think, has a strong desire to work with the tribes. I suspect that many of the tribes are feeling a little overwhelmed with that, to be honest. We kind of feel that way on sort of the, the ranching side in some cases as well. Uh, so I think, you know, patience, relationship building, being sure we're not othering each other. I don't know if that's a good enough answer for your question, but I don't think there is an easy answer to your question. I agree. I don't think there is as well. And I do think the the kernel of, of, of wisdom there that you've sort of brought up on numerous occasions throughout this conversation is the need to avoid othering and the need to avoid framing issues that lead us down dead-end roads and um, adversarial positions. Leslie, this has been fantastic learning more about uh, Western Landowners Alliance, the complex issues challenging private landowners uh, on working lands in the West and the work you all are doing to kind of avoid those um, dead-end paths and, and adversarial framing. Thanks for spending some time with us today. Oh, well, thank you so much for inviting me and giving me the opportunity. Really appreciate it. And if folks want to learn more about the or your organization and the great work you do, where would you direct them? Well, probably the best place is our website at uh, www.westernlandowners.org. Okay. Leslie Allison, thanks very much. 
All right. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to A New Angle. We really appreciate it. And we're coming to you from Studio 49, a generous gift from UM alums Michelle and Lauren Hansen. A New Angle is presented by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications, and the University of Montana College of Business. With additional support from Consolidated Electrical Distributors, Drum Coffee, and Montana Public Radio. Keely Larson is our producer. VTO, Jeff Amet, and John Wicks made our music. Editing by Nick Mott. Social media by AJ Williams. And Jeff Neese is our master of all things sound. Thanks a lot, and see you next time.